you're a visitor, I don't do this every week. It's just this week because on Wednesday I had surgery to reconstruct my thumb. My thumb was broken about eight months ago, and I thought I'd just dislocated it, and um, it was that, just that I was old, it was taking long to get well. But it turns out it was more serious than that. And uh, thankfully, I was able to get surgery, and, um, and it's going to come right, I'm sure. So it's not that serious, but it has slowed me down. I must be honest with you, typing, driving, getting dressed in the morning. I was a little bit late for church, literally because I had a sort of just took everything longer, you know, washing hair with one hand and trying to keep it dry and all sorts. Anyway, I can see I'm not getting any sympathy from you guys. Jeez. <laughs> If you're new to church, I haven't met you. My name's Luke. I'm one of the leaders in this church community. It's a privilege to lead here. Uh, as a church, one of the things we believe is we believe that um, as, as Christ followers, we bring our lives under the Scriptures, the Bible, and we, we, we learn every week as we, as we preach from the Bible, we realign our lives to the Scriptures. We've been working as a church through the book of James. If you don't know James, James was uh, Jesus' younger brother. He wrote five chapters in the New Testament, and, um, and this book, uh, James, has been phenomenal for us as a church. In fact, we've been working through it over, there's 22 sermons we've been working through in the book of James in 2022. This is number 21. This is the penultimate message we've been through. For those of us who've been here for the whole journey, it's been extraordinary, hasn't it? The simple way we simply week by week take a passage from the Bible and bring our lives under it. Just wait. If you're new to church, just wait and see what happens today as God maybe gets your number today on some of these things and begins to challenge how we live. Uh, where are we in the book of James? Well, James is here. James is writing to a people who are suffering tremendously. And he knows, here's the thing. I mean, he's a pastor. You've got you to imagine he cares for these people. And he knows in his heart that there's no sign on the horizon that the suffering is going to relent. It's one thing when you're writing to encourage somebody and you care about somebody, you know, if you can just get to this point, if you can just make it to December, it's going to relent, you know. If you can just get to here, the pressure's going to... But James is writing to some believers who are suffering tremendously, and he's about to put his pen down, and he knows when he puts his pen down, it's not going to get any easier. There is no sign of relent on the horizon. And so James finishes by giving a kind of a, a survival guide, how to finish strong, how to make it to the end and still have your faith intact in the midst of all of this pressure that's coming your way, how to survive hardships and how to finish strong. And so this final mini-series we've been doing through the book of James is five weeks of, the, of which this is the fourth one as we look at a faith that endures, an enduring faith. Uh, we saw in week one that uh, the kind of faith that endures makes it to the end is a faith that lives for God and not for money. It's, 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 it's tempting to live for money in our world. It's tempting for money to get a hold on your life. And here's the thing about it. It's subtle. None of us think we're greedy. Hey? Other people are greedy. Not me. None of us think we're greedy. No, no. You want to survive to the end. You want to make it to the end in your faith? Live for God and not for money. Number two, uh, you want to make it to the end in your faith? Uh, a faith that endures patiently lives towards that day when Christ will return and set the world to right. It hopes upon that day. A faith that makes it to the end values integrity overall. And today we're going to see a, an enduring faith is powerful through prayer. 
Next week, Laura Fisher is going to be with us uh, as she preaches the final installment of our journey through the book of James. I'm not going to tell you what she's going to speak about, but this week I'm speaking about a faith that endures because it values the power of prayer, in particular the power of prayer for healing. And as I typed this whole message, I did so with my hand in this cast. And it strikes me the irony of this. As I'm typing a message on prayer for healing, I'm struggling to do so because of the surgery. I've just had to undergo on my own hand. And I think there's a tension, hopefully we'll get this tension right today, between trusting God to keep moving and at the same time not this kind of um, on-tap, uber-eats, name-it-and-claim-it miracle culture too, that it's not really real either. We want to navigate this tension where we trust that God is alive and at work and He's going to do what He wants to do, and we're hungry for Him to do more, but at the same time, not this irrelevant um, uh, sense. We'll get, to, we'll get right today, hopefully. Let's, uh, let's open our Bibles. James chapter 5, verse 13 to 18, as we um, look at our second last message through the book of James. James says this to us today. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that, God, that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before your word, and you speak to us from these words, God, we submit our lives to you. We as a church are those in this community who have said, God, would you align my life and my practices to your ways and your wisdom? And so as we read your word, I ask Holy Spirit, you would speak to me. Pray that, pray, will you pray that in your words? God, would you speak to me from your word as to what Jesus has done, who I am in light of Christ, and how we can live in new ways because of that. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, if I was to sum up this passage in one sort of big idea that's hopefully sticky for us today, it's this. Prayer opens the door to breakthrough in your life. Prayer opens the door to breakthrough in your life. James is saying we need God's power through prayer when it comes to sickness, when it comes to suffering. We need God's perspective that comes through prayer in seasons of comfort as well. James wants us to see that prayer leads us to depend on God. It, lead, it leads us to invite others into our life when we're suffering in the form of leaders as well. It, it, it leads us to be vulnerable and honest about what we're struggling with and invite brothers and sisters into our lives to trust God, to, to heal us and to restore us and to make us like Christ. Prayer opens the door to breakthrough in your life. And so make prayer the starting point for every situation that you face. 
Let's explore how we see this in the passage. Uh, three points I want to make today. The first one is this. In all situations, go to God in prayer. In all situations, go to God in prayer. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone suffering? What should you do? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? What should you do? Let him sing praise. If anyone suffering for the last three weeks, James has spoken about suffering that comes through financial suffering, being exploited, having, uh, having what's yours and rightfully yours taken from you in an unjust way. He's speaking about suffering in an economic way. And now he transitions from suffering through financial suffering and injustice and exploitation to suffering through sickness. And what should you do if that's you? You should pray. And then he says, is anyone cheerful? Anyone having a really good season? Anyone enjoying life? Things are going really well for you. What should you do? You should praise. In all things, we should be people of prayer. Whether it be sadness, whether it be joy, let both be a cause for prayer. One, the first instance, prayer of intercession for God to move and break in and sustain you with His grace. And the other one, an instance for praising. If you double-click a little bit in a little bit more technical way here, these words. The word prayer that James uses here in the Greek is the broadest word for prayer that we have uh, that he could have used. In James's day, this is the broadest word for prayer that he had to use. It simply means speaking to God. If you're suffering, James says, speak to God about it. Bring God into the conversation. Get with God in this place. And then the word that he uses for praise here in the Greek, it's the same word from which we get the word psalm or singing, singing praises to God. It's the psalms. It, it, when, when things are going well for you, sing praises to God, James is saying. And in both of these verbs, the tense is written in an ongoing, continual way. In other words, keep doing this thing. It's not just a moment. Live in this place where you do this thing. And it's not unique to James. Paul echoes this as well. Look at Paul saying some similar things to James as well here. Ephesians 6 verse 18. Pray in the Spirit at all times on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. I'm, I'm trying to make a case for us that James wants us as common grounders in South Penn to be a people of prayer. All seasons, all circumstances, we're walking with God in prayer. Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 and 18, never stop praying. Thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Jesus Christ. My, prayer, my, my point is, wherever you find yourself in life today, pray. And sometimes, if we're honest, we need to be more reminded to pray in seasons when things are going well. I prayed a heck of a lot more on Wednesday morning before I went in for surgery than I did on Thursday morning on the other side of surgery, right? It's just the way it works. So James says, if you're cheerful, sing praise. Don't, don't lose sight of God. Don't lose sight. Don't, don't, don't fail to connect the dots between what you're enjoying and God. Connect, be in conversation with God. And I think probably worth stopping just asking you, hey, if you're a Christ follower, does this sound like your life? Are you a person of prayer? I mean, let's just, I don't want to put it heavy on us. I really want to call us to something beautiful, much rather than make us feel bad. Probably worth flagging that James's age and, you, and, my, and our age, the world in which you and I live, very different. James, James didn't have a cell phone that was going off in his pocket, you know, with a reminder and an, order and an opportunity to watch Netflix. And How's your prayer life? Christ follows. We are those who live in conversation and connection with God. 
Anyone suffering? You're going through something? Pray. You're cheerful? Pray. In all seasons, engage with God in prayer. Now, James is doing this because um, he believes many things, but two of them I want to highlight. I think lurking behind this is this, an under, is this understanding of the omnipotence of God. James understands God is omnipotent. In fact, in the first six verses, as he addresses this kind of the rich and the exploiting of the poor there, he, he uses a title for God. He uses a name for God, God the Lord of hosts. Some translations say the God of the angel armies. It's this understanding that James says, pray all times. Why? Because I know God is omnipotent. God is the God of the angel armies. There's nothing he cannot do. God is the highest authority in heaven and on earth. So pray. If God wasn't the highest authority in heaven and earth, if God was puny, if God, if God couldn't see around the corner, then you shouldn't pray. Because what if he gets it wrong, right? But no, no. James says he is. He's the sovereign, omnipotent God of all the world. So pray. But not only is God sovereign and omnipotent, he's near to us as well. He hears our prayers. He's near to his children. He answers the prayers of his people. Do you remember a year ago when we preached through the book of Exodus? One of the most important chapters in all the Bible, if you ask me, Exodus chapter 3. 400 years, God's people have been in slavery. It's been suffering. It's been miserable. It's been hard. And, uh, and God comes to rescue them. He, he calls a man named Moses. And when God almost reintroduces himself, if you will, for lack of a better word, to, to his people who are suffering, God's, God's interjecting into their lives again. You know, you, know, you know the words that he uses? He says, to, he says to Moses, he says, For I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I'm concerned about their suffering. God reveals himself to his children as the God who sees what they're going through, as the God who hears their cries. God is, James is wanting us to know, pray whether it's good or bad, in all things pray. Why? Because God is omnipotent. There's nothing he cannot do. And he hears your prayers. He's not distant and aloof and disconnected and uninterested from your life, but he knows you and he hears your prayers. That's why he says in all situations, go to God in prayer, number one. Number two, in serious sickness, pray in faith with your leaders. In serious sickness, pray in faith with your leaders. Read verse 14 and 15 with me. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Let's look at this idea of praying for the sick. How should you pray when you're sick? Well, the first thing I want us to see is I believe that James is speaking here about serious sickness. This is serious sickness that he's addressing, and I'm going to rely on better minds than mine. Um, a scholar named Alec Mortier, commenting on this passage, gives five reasons he believes James is speaking about serious sickness. And I'll just quickly rattle them off to you, but I, just, I really want us to see the context of what James is talking about here. He's saying when serious sickness is in your life, how do we know? Well, number one, the elders are called to the sick person rather than the sick person coming to them, probably because the person cannot move. Number two, the elders do all the praying. The sick person is unable to pray themselves. And so the elders, in a sense, are praying on their behalf. The third one is that the, the one who is sick, the, the Greek word here, I'm not going to try and, I'll try and pronounce it for you, but I'm going to get it wrong. Kamnonta is the Greek word here. If James was here, he'd be laughing at me, or Eden. Um, uh, 
has this um, has this connotation of being exhausted. Jordan's laughing at me. Uh, has this connotation of being exhausted, of being weary. Um, as well. So I, this is not just a, a very quick, this has gone on for some time and I'm tired and I'm exhausted and I'm weary and I need your faith in a sense on my behalf as well because I'm struggling. It's been a long road here. We see the faith of the elders is what's held up here, not just the faith of the sick person. And finally, the elders pray over this person as if he were in a prone position as well. The bottom line is Alec is convincing us that this is a person who is very sick in critical condition. What do you do? You pray. How should the elders pray here? Will the elders anoint this person with oil while they make prayers of intercession for God to break in and to bring healing in their life? In the, in the ancient world, oil was said to have medicinal qualities, but I don't think that's what James is speaking about here. I think James is speaking of the significance of being anointed, of being set apart and, and kind of uh, set apart into the presence of God, where the presence of God uh, is poured out over the person. That's the symbolism of oil. It wasn't, I mean, to the, these days we sprinkle a little bit here and there, you know. But in those days, there was more generous pouring. There was the Spirit of God coming over the person was what was being represented here. And it was kind of setting apart this person for God's special attention and care. Worth noting here, a couple of tensions in this passage. Most prayers for healing in the New Testament don't have oil involved. If, you, if you're familiar with the Bible, you, you'll know this. And so this verse is not a mandate to all pray, always pray with oil. I want to be clear here. This is, this, is, um, this is not that all praying for sex should involve oil, um, and that if we don't use oil, God won't heal people. That's not what's being said here. So I realized very quickly in this first meeting that this has become a technical meeting about oil. Uh, I hadn't anticipated a, a technical preach about oil as much as I was in the middle of it and discovered that's what was happening. But it's only for another minute or two, and then we're going to go into some other things. I reckon we don't always have to pray with oil. However, maybe in instances, not as a rule, but maybe as a guideline, in instances where there's life-threatening or chronic situations, and we, and we feel almost in a silly way, um, oil might stimulate our faith. That just by, uh, uh, it's just oil, don't get me wrong, but somehow it stimulates our faith. Somehow God is so kind and so gracious to us. Even later when we share communion together, it's visual representations of something that is happening in God's spirit and in his power. And he gives, these to the, the, gives us these things to help us to grasp what's happening. And so I think in a situation where we feel it's going to help stimulate our faith and prayer, let's bring out the oil, let's pray, and let's trust. But let's never forget that oil is not the source of healing. The power of healing is in prayer as God's Spirit moves, nothing else. Does that make sense? Okay. Oil helps us who are weak in faith, but the power is in the presence of God. My big idea today is prayer opens the door to breakthrough in your life. We're looking at prayer in the form of serious illness, and James makes a really bold claim. He says, you will be, you will be healed. You, you will be raised up if you pray the prayer of faith. Sure. What does that mean for us? How does that work? Let's unpack this a little bit because I've lived in both. I've lived in powerful moments of praying for people and God does extraordinary things. I'll allude to one in, in a second. I've also lived in moments where we've prayed and we've pleaded and we've left disappointed and sad as well. I think this verse is a helpful correction to those of us who are too scared to pray. 
who are too scared to pray because we're afraid nothing will happen. I think there's many of us as kind of modern Christians who get trapped in this kind of place where we, we don't want to trust God anymore in case God doesn't do anything. And I think that's not where James calls us to live. Yes, it's not miracles called down like Uber Eats on tap. That's not what James is saying. But there is a place where we still need to trust God. We still need to believe that God still moves and still does in our lives. And so if you're here and you're on the kind of the spectrum as a Christian of being like a skeptic, a real skeptic, I, I, I think the challenge to you is to hear James's words, to come back a little this more and to trust God again. James calls us to pray bold prayers. And he says that God heals, God hears our prayers, that God still does heal. On the other hand, I want us to know God is sovereign and he chooses to heal, when he chooses to heal, how he chooses to heal, uh, to heal, and we don't just call these things down when we decide. A miracle is a miracle because it is a, because it's not common day. Whenever you decide, it happens. And we err on the other side as well. We err on the side when we expect nothing of God, and we err on the side when we presume everything as well. We've got to, We've got to get this tension right. We would do well to remember as well when it comes to healing. All healing this side of heaven is temporary anyway. There is no perfect healing that comes in our body. So I, if this was a tension between name it and claim it, it happens whenever I want, and I'm never going to pray or trust God to anything, I would love to call us to a church, as a church to be, if this is the middle, just a little this way. Let's be people who trust God. Let's be people who lean in here. But let's not make the mistake of either side. Let's not forget Paul's words. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says this. Three different times I begged with the Lord to take it away. He's talking about an ailment, some, some aspect of his, whether it be a physical uh, suffering, a sickness, we're not sure. Whether it was a struggle, we, we actually don't know what Paul's struggle was. And I think that is a gift to us because perhaps we get to read in our struggles into these things as well. 2 Corinthians 12, 8, three different times, Paul, who wrote more, than, more letters than anyone else in the, in the New Testament, begged the Lord to take it away. I came in faith and I prayed and I said, God, please deliver me. Take this thing away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that in the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults and hardships and persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I'm not sure what Paul's ailment or Paul's suffering was, but we do know that in this instance, God was more glorified in Paul with his thorn than Paul without his thorn. God is bigger than just the way we think it should pan out. We've got to find the balance between never expecting God to heal anyone and demanding these things on tap. Neither extreme are we called to live in as a church. I think James calls us to err, though, on the side of faith and boldness, mindful that God's grace sustains us and he is sufficient for us in our weakness and our suffering too that we need to draw strength from Christ to sustain us until Jesus comes again and sets everything right. Worth stopping and asking, how are you doing in this area of faith? Because we Christians, we, 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 we believe that uh, we have a supernatural faith. 
It's, yes, there is so much of our faith. I, what I, one of the things I love about Christianity is it makes rational sense in so many ways. There is a way in which the biblical worldview makes sense of the human experience and the world in which we live that, that, that I, I don't think anything comes close to explaining as well as the wisdom and the wonder of the Scriptures. But, but it's more than just reason and sense. There's a supernatural element to this. There is a faith. There is a spirit of God who is alive within us, who still wants to work in our world and through our lives today. And we are those who don't just have this uh, great sort of intellectual sense of, yes, this makes sense, but who also live in that tension of faith where we trust God is still at work and his grace is sufficient when it doesn't work the way we thought it was as well. James speaks in here of the prayer of faith. Lots of different things being said about there. If you were to squeeze me, Luke, and ask me where I land, I've drawn on better minds than mine for this. Keith Warrington says of this, the prayer of faith is best identified as knowledge of God's will for a particular situation where no scriptural guidance is available. I think it's sometimes where God by his spirit just gives us a sense of this this thing I'm gonna do. Please, I'm, I'm not a person who's, seen lots of miracles happen powerfully through my life. Uh, I would, like my friend Andrew who was here, he's a medical doctor. Uh, he, he preached, what, three or four weeks ago. Seen amazing things happen. I have so much to learn from him. I wish I could see more of that work in my life. But I remember praying for someone during lockdown about a year, year and a bit ago. I remember praying for someone who had a very serious blood condition. He's not here with us today because he's away on his wedding anniversary with his wife, which is beautiful. And his blood, his blood had ceased to produce platelets. You remember, uh, if you were here, we prayed for Herman. And nothing, nothing. It was so bad. I'm in a big condition. I'd pastorally worked with us. But one day we felt led to gather around him and to rally around him in prayer. And we laid hands on him. We anointed him with oil. And we prayed probably for about 25 minutes or so. Uh, it's irrelevant the time. But there was a sense while we were praying, I felt in my heart. I just felt God whisper to me, we've got this one. Okay, okay, it's done. It hasn't happened many times in my life at all. Please, I don't want, I'm not saying that this is the norm that Luke experiences. Everyone wants me to pray for them. It's not been my, it's not. But that day we prayed, I just felt God say, okay, it's done. It was, it was two months. We, we, we take these things cautiously. I'm a bit of a skeptic too. It's been over a year since he's had a blood transfusion. He was having them literally weekly at that stage. Little by little we've seen, okay, five platelets, six 9, 21, 90,000 when I spoke to him on the phone the other day. I share this in the first meeting. Uh, amazing, yeah, great. They were a little bit of flattering. Of in the first meeting, I preached this message with parents visiting from England who I, I buried their daughter two weeks before COVID as well. Young lady, mom to two children, my, my children's age. I, it's, there's a tension here, guys. We live between the already and the not yet. What Jesus has done and what Jesus is ultimately going to do when he returns. But we're called not just to err on the side of no faith. We're also not just pretending it's already happened. It hasn't. Jesus is coming back. There is much that he's still to do. But in the meanwhile, we live in this tension in the middle, sustained by his power in prayer, in conversation with him as he leads us supernaturally. Not just cognitively. It's a beautiful part that is cognitive. But he's with us and he leads us and he inspires us too. I'm sorry I'm getting carried away. Perhaps it's the painkillers. Um, last thing. Uh, uh, James is writing. Oh, second last thing. Second last thing. Uh, 
James says this. He says, look at Elijah. Look at Elijah. Elijah was a man just like us. In this translation, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain. And then he prayed and heaven gave rain. What do we see here about Elijah? Elijah was a man just like us. Elijah was not Jesus in that sense. He was a human being just like you and me. He had a nature. He knew what it was to be sinful. Yet his confidence wasn't in his sinless his confidence was in the omnipotent or powerful God who is with him. We can learn from Elijah in this way. Elijah did pray fervently. He prayed intensely. You see that word fervently? It's not a word we use a whole lot these days in English anymore. When last did you say fervent? been a while, hey? It's not, it's not common in our language, but, but it's a word that means he was intense. He was active. He was engaged. This was something he was doing seriously. This was business, right? Terry Virgo, speaking about this passage, Terry says, Terry says sometimes he thinks our prayers are a little bit more uh, like, you know, talk-talky? It's this, now it's called very sophisticated, ding-dong ditching. It's the kids now do this thing where they run up to the front door of somebody and they knock on the door. You used to do this as a kid, right? And then, and then quickly before the person opens the door, you run away and you hide and you watch them come out and you go, ha, ha, nobody there, right? Terry says, I wonder if our prayers are a little bit like this with God, you know? We've bolted behind the door before God's even had a chance to really come out and look. And he's contending that we actually pray with a little bit more. There's an old school word. It's called importunity. You pray. It's the story of the widow who cries out to the judge for justice. She says, give me justice. Give me justice. The parable Jesus tells. I'm off the cuffing here. We might be Luke 19. But anyway, give me justice. Give me justice, she prays. And the, and the judge eventually relents and he says, uh, whether, whether or not it would be a justice is not the issue, but i just got to give this woman what she's asking for because I feel she'll never let me go. She'll never stop asking me. Jesus tells us that we would always seek God in prayer. And I just want to make a case for us as a church to be those who seek God more fervently in prayer as well. Okay. Are we all right? Last point. We're making a big idea. Prayer opens the door to breakthrough in your life. We're not, we're not on the extremes of these things. We're not making the text say what it's not saying. But James is making a case that we are those who trust God to move, that, that we, God hears our prayers, that we are still a people who rely on Him for breakthrough. In all situations, we go to God in prayer. In serious sickness, we go with leaders to God in prayer. But then James changes tack a little bit. They're connected. And, and here's the third point. Make confession part of your prayer and practices for healing. Make confession part of your, your prayer and practices for healing. Verse 15, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. First question here, we must ask, is sin always the cause of sickness in our lives? Have a look here. Look at the words, and if. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven, okay? And if tell us, if is a possibility. They tell us it's not always the cause of sickness in our lives. I think we know this one. Majority of us know. However, it does leave the door open a little bit. It doesn't entirely shut the door of possibility to the fact that sickness can cause, uh, sorry, that sin can cause sickness in our lives as well. I do believe that James is not sending us onto some kind of witch hunt to find some unknown sin in our lives when we are sick. If you read this again, and take a second, read it closely, maybe we leave it up there. Thanks, Liz. It's like it's your second meeting and you're already on the ball here. Um, 
in instances where sin is the cause of sickness in our lives, I think James writes this in such a way that it would be obvious to the person that's suffering here. I think James writes it in such a way, it's almost assumed that if this were the case, the sick believer would know that it was so, and then you would be able to confess and repent, and this would prove to be key in the healing. And so please, let's not go witch hunting for all sorts of things. Let's not find connections that aren't there. But hang on, James does say there can be, and we need to be mindful of this. And and so let's, um, if God leads you that way and and explains that to you, then that's the way you go. Here's where I'm really wanting to get to in verse 16. James develops confession a little bit further. This confessing is not to the elders, but it's to one another. Did you see that? Confess your sins to one another. Confession is part of the one another's of the New Testament. It's it's part of being a gospel-centered community. What do I mean gospel-centered community? As Common Ground South Penn, we're a community with the gospel at the center. The gospel then shapes everything we do. And so one of the ways the gospel shapes how we live as Christ followers is we are a people who confess sins to one another. To live in a gospel-shaped way is to have people in your life whom you regularly confess sin to, who you pray with and pray with you, and are trusting. God for you to progress in sanctification and Christ-likeness. Does this sound like your life? Gospel culture is one of honesty, vulnerability, and transparency. Notice in this passage, there's no special priest who's hearing confession. There's no um, kind of special designated confession hearer, but rather this is to one another. This is confession to a brother or sister in your community who you know. Um, It's clear, too, that this confession is not just a mental activity, right? You confess to one another means they can hear you. It's not like I confessed to Jesus quietly while we were singing, right? Did you see that in the passage? There is, I'm making a case for this because I'm hoping that today we would start to live differently as a church and we would take a habit that I think we've lost from our lives that is vital for the people that we're going to be coming to the future as we take seriously what it is to one another in our lives in this area of confession. Notice, it's not just me and Jesus quietly in meditative state. It is audibly so that my brother can hear me confessing sin to them, and then it goes further to trust for healing in their lives. Do you see that in the text? Great, okay. In this context, in our context, I'd love this to see played out probably in our life groups. I'd love, so I'm in a life group. I want you to know that. Yes, I'm, I preach often in our church. It's true. But I want you to know I'm also part of a life group just like everyone else. In that life group, um, we meet and uh, we, we, from time to time, all the guys in our life group, the last one we did was Nurtuk Beach at night in the pitch dark. We were walking, five guys. The ladies don't meet the same way. Obvious reasons. They meet together in a home and we walk and we talk through and we confess in, in each other's lives. I want you to know I'm doing this. I want you to know this is part of who we are. This is part of gospel culture. When last did you sit down with a brother or sister and say, I've got to confess sin to you. There's some stuff in my life that needs to go. 
I'm not trying to put something on us in a heavy way. I'm trying to inspire us to something that I think is beautiful and it's going to be key to your future and my future. Gospel culture is confessing and repenting together as we trust Christ to heal us and transform us. In some instances, you've sinned against the person you're confessing to, and so you bring reconciliation and restoration to that relationship. As opposed to, I just keep quiet. Maybe I, maybe I avoid them for a while, right? Right? After enough avoiding them for a while, maybe I stop coming to life group where I've got to keep seeing them, right? Now I've got to join another life group. Maybe I don't join another life group. Maybe I join another church and I've just avoided them entirely. These things happen, right? I've seen them in my life. You've seen them in your life. The alternative is that sin continues in secrecy and in silence in our lives where its power is strongest. It destroys our relationships with each other. I see it destroy marriages, guys. Friendships, relationships with parents, relationships with children, relationships with closest friends. All you need to do is just not confess it. Just keep it quiet. Do nothing about it. What's the alternative? You share it with a trusted brother or sister, you bring it to the light. You, you bring it under Christ. You repent of your part. You make amends to some. I mean, where do you see this happen in business? Where do you see this happen in our community? It doesn't happen anywhere else. Do you know where it has to happen? It has to happen in the church. We as Common Ground South Penn have to become the kind of people who are so secure in who Christ has made us to be. My, my, your belonging in this place is not because you're morally perfect. This is not a collection of all the best citizens of society who always get it right morally. No, we are those who understand that we are so broken and so sinful, it took the creator son of God to die on a cross just so you could get in. Good use, hey? Sort of. Both. Yes and no, hey? Should be yes and no. You are more sinful than you ever thought. You're also more loved than you ever knew because he did it. And because your identity is not tethered and your, your place in this community is not tethered to, am I getting it right all the time? Am I perfect? Am I perfect? Am I perfect? I have to, I have to show everybody I'm perfect all the time because that way they can still accept me. Because you are going, I'm sinful, but I'm loved. I don't have to pretend to be something I'm not. Therefore, because my identity is tethered to what Christ has done and Christ's perfection on my behalf, I am able to come to my brother and say, brother, I am struggling with this sin. Pray with me that it dies because I don't want to live like this any longer. And when that starts to happen, you know what starts to happen? Sin dies you begin to become transformed. You be three months from then, you are someone that you weren't three months ago because your identity is secure. You've found a safe relationship in the community. You've brought it to the light. And you haven't just confessed and everybody's gone, wow, that was so brave of you. You were so vulnerable. I'm so proud of you. That's great. That's a fantastic start. We live in a culture that affirms everything just as we are, but challenges nothing. As Christ follows, we affirm, we say, that is amazing. I'm so glad you were brave to share that. But now we're going to trust Christ that you would be transformed and you wouldn't stay that way. 
So what do we do? We repent. We confess to one another. We receive grace and empowering to live in different ways. And then in a month's time or two weeks' time, you check in again over coffee. You say, hey, how's it going? I'm not the accountability police that's like big brother in your life, but I'm there. I'm in your corner. I'm trusting that since we last spoke, you're a little bit more like Jesus, and he's been sustaining you, and your life is starting to look a little bit different because we prayed together and we, brought, we confessed that sin. Guys, this is gospel culture. I love that we get together on church and worship together on Sundays, part of gospel culture. But this is not the whole of what we do as a church. We are those in the South Peninsula who are dying a little bit to sin every week, every month. And we're doing it as we open the door in confession to a trusted brother or sister. And we're in that place, we pray for healing. And God is changing us little by little as we become more and more fit for heaven. Is confession part of your practice? Probably, don't feel bad, probably none of us or, or few of us, very few. I don't, I, as a pastor in our church, I know this practice is not prolific in our community. I'm hungry today that I know it's difficult and I know it's new for many of us that we would hear God's word. And remember, see, confess your sins to one another. What do we do on a Sunday? Then we bring our lives into alignment with that thing. Okay, this thing's been missing. I see it in the word. It's not just Luke's clever idea or whatever. Like, No, no, it's in the Bible. So I'm going to begin to align my life to that practice. So I'm gonna, let me give you a second. Before we go to the communion table, who in your life do you have? Who can you, how do you know what to confess? It's the thing you don't want to confess. How do you know what you confess? Start with the thing you don't want to confess. That's how you know. There is a cost. You've got to choose. Am I willing to pay the price of embarrassment and to begin a journey toward freedom? Or would I rather, because I'm afraid of being embarrassed, choose to continue in secrecy and in silence with this thing and pretend that it's not there? you got a choice today. I have a choice today. But I'm not, I'm, I'm not putting something on us as much as I'm saying, hey, Luke, Luke, pastor in this church, needs confession. I am just as sinful, if not more than all of us, even probably more than all of you, okay? I need this too. If we are going to become a people who are a gospel-centered people, who believe our identity is secure in Christ, but we have got some way to go. Jesus has made provision for us to be transformed through the medium of confessing sin to one another and trusting for grace to transform us and to live in his power. This is how we do it. Amen? Okay. I'm sorry, if you're a visitor, we don't often hammer on one little thing that long. But it's just, I found in, in the Bible, this is, a, this is something that all of us can do, but very few of us do. And I know, I know what happens if we don't do this. I know how that sin goes on and it lives. And it lives for five years in your marriage, for ten years in a marriage. And pretty soon it goes on, it, everything goes, it destroys us ultimately. Sin, sin left in our lives in secret never leads to life. You, th you, you think you're getting away with something, you're not. You're just sitting on a ticking time bomb. 
And, and if, all of us, if all of us in this room today were to go home and go to one person this week and say, you know what, you and I, we're going to meet every two weeks, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the thing. I don't want to tell anybody else, and I'm going to trust you. And in that place, God's going to meet us and bring us grace. You know what would happen? All of our lives would change. We would become a greater and brighter light to this community. But you've got to choose. Is it going to be embarrassment and hope for change or the status quo, the way things have been? Let's come to the table. I love the way Jesus chose ordinary elements, bread and wine, to symbolize who he is and what he's done for us. If you're a Christ follower, I want to invite you to this table to come and uh, take some of the bread and take some of this grape juice. It's not wine, it's grape juice. Um, and, uh, and I want to lead us in a prayer in a second as we come to this table. But won't you either in, come into the, the front here or outside there and just grab one of those in the meanwhile, please, before I lead us in prayer. Can we do that? as human beings we are so skilled in the art of self-concealment we are so skilled in the art of self-concealment and the gospel lays us bare before the cross and says I want to I want to make all of you like me I want to transform you into the likeness with Jesus but that means it means being honest about these things because our identity is not tethered to our performance. Because you are more than whether or not you messed up this week. You're loved by Christ. You, you are free to be able to do that. But there's a price to pay. There's a price of embarrassment to pray for a, to pay for a profit of healing and transformation. I remember, I remember hearing the words. I remember. 20 years ago, uh, as a young guy learning to follow Jesus, really, I mean, you, 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 most of you heard our sexuality series, you know just how messed up the perspective I came from in the life I lived. I remember confessing some sin to my mates, and two, two mates with me, and the one mate going, me too, and uh, we needed to do business together with Jesus, and the other mate going, it's true, that is wrong, that is, that is terrible, but that you are more than that. And Jesus meeting me there and us beginning a journey of transformation. 
you know what I received in that moment? Although I was a sinner, I received acceptance in my family in spite of the sin in my life because of what Christ had done. And it didn't cause me to settle in my sinfulness. It caused me to lean in for Christ to change me. I want to call us to that. As we come to this table today, Jesus' body represented in the bread, representing Christ's body that was broken so that my body that is broken could be restored. Jesus, who was not sinful, was broken because I, who am sinful, need to be transformed into healing and wholeness. His blood, perfect and sinless, was shed because mine, sinful, needed to be transformed. And he chooses these beautiful elements of nourishment, food, and drink that nourish us. As common grounders in South Penn, we are those who say, Christ, we are not Yet who we want to be, but neither are we who we were. And today, Jesus, we are trusting you to forgive us our sin. We're serious about it, Christ. So serious that, God, I'm wanting to to bring it to the light, to share it with a brother or sister. Jesus, I need your courage. I need your strength. I need your grace to empower me to live in ways that go against my nature even. I need your grace to empower me to get over myself, to lose myself and my sense of pride. I need your grace to sustain me as I say no one more time to the struggle with sin. So Jesus, would you nourish me in my soul, feed me, Energize me. Give me that which I need to live the life you've called me to live. I wonder if there's some specific sin you just need to bring out to Jesus now. I'm not asking you to share it with anybody right now, but bring it to Christ. Jesus, this thing. I just He knows, and, I, and you know He knows, but you, you want to bring it to the light. You want to clear the air. Jesus, thank you for your blood that washes over, makes me white as snow. Perhaps there's something that you faced this week. It's a big no or a big yes, or you you realize even as we're preaching today, there's a there's a next step you've got to take, and it's daunting and it's scary. We believe that as we eat of this bread and drink of this wine, that Christ meets us here and he empowers us to live the lives he's called us to live. We're going to draw from him, Jesus, this week as I endeavor to live in your ways, this week as I endeavor to represent you, Christ, would you empower me now at your table? 
Would you give me that which I need within myself from you to live the way you've called me to live? Thank you that you don't just call me to live a particular way and then send me out there to do it. But you're with me and you sustain me and you, you, you empower me. And so now, right now, as I eat of this bread and as I drink of this grape juice, Jesus, would you minister to my soul and my, my being that which I need to live in your ways? Friends, husbands, fathers, sons, daughters, Let's draw from Christ now that which we need to live in his ways. Can we stand together and let's eat of the bread and drink of the grape juice together? Thank you, Christ. You're not just to do this and do that but you come in as a source of power and life and wisdom and vitality to my life. I draw from you now in your presence, in the presence of my brothers and sisters, I draw from you vitality and grace to live in your ways, Jesus. Would you pray your version of that prayer as you eat of the bread and drink of the grape juice? I draw from you, Jesus. I need you. This, this is what I'm drawing from you now, Christ. From your very person, from your very self. I'm drawing from you, Christ. I want to live in your ways this week. Before I hand over to Peter, let me pray for us. God, I pray for us as common riders in South Penn, maybe visitors as well joining us who want to lean in here. God, we want to be those who are being transformed into likeness with you. Jesus, we want to be those whose identities are so secure in your perfect performance of righteousness that we can be honest about our failures and yet not be defined by them but drawing from you strength and power and wisdom to live in your ways. I pray for every Christ follower wanting to follow you today, the courage and safe relationship to be able to put into practice what we've seen in your word today, Jesus. May we be a people who confess our sins to one another, who repent who are ministered to by you and who live differently. And a year from now, because of these new practices we want to live in, we would be different and our friendships would be different and our decisions would be different and our marriages would be different and our witness to our community would be different, Jesus. Because of your grace to us is stronger than our moralistic efforts, Jesus.